Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The election is now behind us. Donald Trump is officially a one-term president. A broad coalition of more than 75 million voters, the most in American history, cast ballots for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In his first speech as president-elect, Biden declared this as the season for healing. And yet the election results reveal some bitter truths. We remain a nation deeply divided. Trump received more than 70 million votes, a number greater than four years ago. And exit polls revealed that once again, a majority of white women backed Trump. In her first speech as vice president-elect, Harris took to the stage wearing suffragist white and declared that she stands on the shoulders of generations of women who paved her path. How do we make sense of the fact that most white women did not stand with her? This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured and often frustrating politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I'm also a white woman. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election, when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. White Picket Fence isn't a podcast just about conservative white women. This is a podcast about all of us, how white womanhood in America has been constructed, how it's evolved, and how it's affected our politics. It's a podcast about how white women have fallen short and how we need to step up. This season, we'll explore why white women have, throughout history, aligned their politics not with women of color, but with white men. Why white women's support for Trump still comes as such a shock to so many of us, why we were so late to the game, and most importantly, what we're going to do about it. As we begin our exploration of white women's politics, we should establish a few facts. White women have voted Republican for the better part of the last 70 years. What we saw in 2016, and again this year, were not aberrations, but the continuation of a long-standing pattern. And as we'll discuss today, white women's complicity with injustice doesn't end in the voting booth. White women have played an active role in upholding racist systems at every stage of U.S. history. So in an election in which white identity politics took center stage, it should not come as a shock to us that millions of white voters, men and women alike, rallied in support of those interests. And yet the galvanization of women that began with the 2017 women's marches was not for naught. Numbers of white women did move politically. Those suburban housewives that Trump was desperately pleading with to like him in recent weeks? In many states, including critical ones like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, increased numbers of them responded, no thanks. In the coming weeks, we'll dive deeper into the nuances of the election results. But today, we're going to begin our exploration with the parallels between that watershed moment of January 2017 and another moment, nearly 100 years prior, when women also took to the streets demanding justice. 
why now, like then, the great awakening of white women was significant, but also fell short. Today we reckon with the deeper truths, that for generations we've been asleep, and that maybe it isn't just systems that are the problem. On President Trump's first full day in office, huge crowds here in the U.S. and around the world. And while the mission statement of the protests do not mention Donald Trump by name, organizers say they're against the campaign rhetoric that dehumanized minorities and the larger issue of women's rights. Still, In the weeks following the 2016 election, millions of women poured out their anguish into private Facebook groups. They began organizing. And that January day, they took to the streets. I was there. So is Jesse Daniels, a professor at Hunter College in New York. So this is January of 2017. There are these white women that show up. They have on the pink pussy hats. They're taking selfies with the cops, and they're posting those on Instagram. And, and some of the signage at that march was, you know, like one of the signs I remember was, if Hillary had been elected, I'd be at brunch now. And it, it suggests a kind of specialness, like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to be out here protesting. And, but what, the, what that says is, because everything's been going my way until now, you know? The 2017 Women's March was branded as a revolutionary moment. But the pageantry of it, women marching through the streets, was a callback to the start of women's involvement in American politics, the suffrage movement. A hundred years ago, women won the constitutional right to vote with the 19th Amendment. All citizens, regardless of gender, could, in theory, cast a ballot. But the organizing around women's suffrage began long before 1920. What we know when we look back in history is that many suffragists first cut their teeth, and this is across the board, across racial lines, doing abolitionist work, working in anti-slavery groups, organizations, and efforts and campaigns. Treva Lindsay teaches African-American women's history at The Ohio State University. One of the first times that we see this in this way, where we talk about women's rights and women's suffrage at a national level, is at the Anti-Slavery Convention in 1837. It is this notion that freedom and justice and rights have to be thought of in a more robust and generative way that involves this interracial cooperation. So from the inception of the suffragist movement, you do have African-American women, you have white women. Many suffragists, both white and black, supported this idea of universal suffrage, that any American citizen should be allowed to vote. Black men, black women, white women, Despite their differences, they were all disenfranchised. Here's Treva again. And you start to see this solidarity that emerges between abolitionist struggles and women's suffrage. But then the Civil War ended. The country entered a period of reconstruction. And the solidarity that had developed between suffragists and abolitionists? That fractures quite a bit after the Civil War and the passage of what we know as the Reconstruction Amendments. Three amendments to the U.S. Constitution, known collectively as the Reconstruction Amendments, tried to address our nation's shameful history of human bondage. First came the 13th Amendment in 1865. That abolished slavery outright. Then came the 14th, the Citizenship Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States were now citizens. That included all formerly enslaved people. Finally, in 1870, the 15th Amendment, which 
bars discrimination for the right to vote on the basis of race. But there was no mention of gender. And when you have the 15th Amendment, what you have is this incredible fracturing because white women are like, hey, what about us? We've been fighting in this fight now for almost 60 years for woman's suffrage and now black men will be able to vote and we won't be able to vote and this splits the movement. It was during debates over the 15th Amendment that the racism of white suffragists really came to light. Elizabeth Cady Stanton referred to black men as sambos and argued that the 15th Amendment, quote, creates an antagonism everywhere between educated, refined women and the lower orders of men, especially in the South. In other words, how the hell are formerly enslaved black men getting the vote before me? There are black women who are like, wow, we, we are now hearing all this racism that's coming from some of the leaders of the movement, some of our favorites, ones that we like to talk about, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, that we hear such painful, racially charged and racist comments that come out of this moment and national organizations fracture because of this. And that has long-term effects for the women's movement. That has long-term effects that we can feel reverberating even among women's activism in the 21st century. For those of us who grew up idolizing suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, it's kind of heartbreaking to realize these truths. The betrayal that we feel about the suffrage movement is not just that our heroines were flawed. It's that the foundation of the movement to secure political rights for women had a rotten core. The divisions between white and black women only deepened the longer the fight for suffrage went on. The radical, by any means necessary brand of activism from the movement's younger leaders like Alice Paul increasingly relied on what they considered respectability aesthetics. Parades became a PR tool. In 1913, when thousands of suffragists marched through the streets of New York, black women were forced to walk in the back. Ultimately, it took nearly a century of work to get the 19th Amendment ratified. When it passed, women officially gained the right to vote. But that's not what actually happened. By 1920, our nation was well into its ugly Jim Crow era and deeply segregated by race. And although it's inaccurate to say that the 19th Amendment only enfranchised white women, they benefited disproportionately from it. Because in the South, many states enacted voting restrictions specifically designed to keep Black Americans from voting, both men and women. Susan Ware is a women's rights historian. I asked her who actually got to vote when the 19th Amendment was officially put into place. There were some African-American women, those who didn't live in the South, those who lived in northern cities like New York and Philadelphia and Chicago were deeply involved in the politics. Ida B. Wells is a perfect example of that. Uh, so it's a simplistic view. But I think in general, when we think about who was enfranchised by that amendment, and if you were going to put a moniker on it, who are they? It is primarily uh, white women. And once those white women got the vote, they effectively turned their backs on the other women and men who were still fighting for the ballot. Here's Trevor Lindsay again. A considerable amount of suffragists do not come to fight for Black women, for Chinese American women, for Indigenous women to have the right to vote. And that actually comes a lot later. 
in the history of voting rights in this country. And you don't see suffrage activists being very involved supporters, I should say, for voting rights post the 19th Amendment being ratified and passed. Even when asked directly for their help, white suffragist leaders doubled down on their stance that gender and race were two separate spheres. Here's Susan Ware. And the prime example of that is when African-American former suffragists go to the National Women's Party convention in either 1921 or 22 and say, and that was one of the main suffrage groups, it was Alice Paul's group, and say, um, well, uh, we now have uh, this federal amendment, but we cannot vote in the South. And Alice Paul says to them, that is not a women's issue, that is a civil rights issue. And we instead are going to focus only on women's issues, which in her case was the Equal Rights Amendment. So you have a clear case of what we could call the remnants of the white suffrage movement turning its back on African-American suffragists. This notion that the racism that black women and other women of color experienced was not a women's issue, the centering, so to speak, of white women's experiences is a legacy that has carried with us long past suffrage. It remained a dynamic in the second wave feminist movement of the 1960s and in the lean-in brand of feminism that we've seen in recent years. And it's why so many women of color remain skeptical that the white women who took to the streets in 2017 sporting pink pussy hats would really show up when it mattered. What we've seen over history is that without actually reckoning with how in particular white women have contributed to, perpetuated, or been complicit with white supremacy and have not grappled with white privilege, you see that that shows up in fragile solidarities that are easily broken when the question of racism comes up. There are many lessons that we need to reckon with from the suffrage movement. It's not only that white women didn't show up to fight for the rights of black women. It's not only that white women cleaved race from gender and claimed the latter for their own. We have also, as Treva points out, actively worked to perpetuate and maintain systems of white supremacy. Throughout history, and particularly in the Trump era, it's been easy to put a white male face on racism and to view it as an extension of patriarchy, something that white women would be highly motivated to fight against. American popular culture has created what is a really easily recognizable sort of white supremacist, right? It's a rural white American, probably in overalls, driving a truck, right? Waving a Confederate flag and committing acts of, of violence. Elizabeth Gillespie McRae is a historian and the author of Mothers of Mass Resistance, a book about women and white supremacy. And I think in many ways that has clouded our ability as historians and citizens to see how white supremacist politics works when it's dressed up differently. We have had a hard time recognizing someone who um, 
is seemingly respectable, right? Um, is well educated, is recognized as sort of a volunteer and activist in your local community, helping in the public schools or volunteering at the church. What her research shows is that white women have actually played a powerful role in the maintenance of racial segregation and inequity. From their grassroots activism to their professional and familial roles, white women have knitted ideas about race into the fabric of their communities. But because so much of this occurred in realms traditionally associated with womanhood, in schools, in homes, local community activism, it's remained under the radar. Here's an example. In 1924, just four years after women won the right to vote, the Virginia General Assembly passed the Racial Integrity Act. And that was essentially what we might call the one-drop rule, right? That they were that in Virginia they were gonna draw hard lines between white and black and they were gonna erase other racial designations. Suddenly in Virginia, there were only two boxes you could check under race: white and colored. Interracial marriage was illegal. People of color could be turned away from public schools and hospitals. And guess who was responsible for deciding which box was checked when, say, a baby was born? Midwives, social workers, public welfare officers. In other words, white women. As part of that effort, the folks in um, Rockbridge County, Virginia, and Amherst County, Virginia, send college-age women to New York to get trained in the science of eugenics and how to determine the race of someone that you're interviewing or providing services to. And there they worked with women from all over the country. Some of the scientists in the 1920s believed that women had a particular secret power, that's not what they called it, but a particular ability to recognize race among people. And so, you know, here are college women studying social work that go to study in New York to learn how to be good social workers, which also means learning how to uphold the color line. Education was another arena in which white women played a central role in upholding racial injustice. Schools were seen as an extension of the home, the logical domain of women. When efforts to expand public education spread throughout the country, schools needed additional resources particularly in the U.S. South in the early 20th century. Many school teachers, right, were not much more educated than the high school students that they were teaching. And so textbooks became a way to sort of bridge the gap between um, the lack of teacher training as high school education expanded. Textbooks became a source of great power, shaping the ways we understood our country and our history. White segregationist women realized that if they could control the textbooks that were in public schools, they could craft our national narratives about slavery, the Civil War, and race in America. The first step was pushing for statewide textbook adoption across the South. Newly formed textbook selection committees handpicked the books that would appear on every public school student's desk. And these women realized early on that if they could shape that committee, and the selections of that committee, that the history that would be told to public school students across the state for decades, right, would be a history that said, 
that the Civil War was about states' rights, not slavery, that enslaved people were really part of the family, and that slavery as an institution was a school, and that in many ways, um, enslaved people were treated better than industrial workers in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, right, in the 1890s and 1900s. And so what happens nationally is that because Southern states move to statewide textbook adoption, if you're a textbook company in Chicago or New York City, it makes good economic sense to shape your textbooks in a way that receives, right, the biggest contracts. And so those textbooks that were shaped out of white segregationist women's efforts to shape American history become the textbooks of the nation. Okay, a final example. Let's fast forward 50 or so years and hop over the Mason-Dixon line. Boston, 1974. The school board had refused for over a decade to adopt policies that would have produced a more racially integrated public school system. But following a court case in Charlotte, North Carolina, busing, literally putting kids on buses and transporting them outside their designated districts, became a way to desegregate schools. Soon, northern states like Massachusetts faced a similar mandate. And um, white women in Boston rose up in opposition. These Boston mothers took some cues from their Southern predecessors. They reached out to George Wallace, the segregationist former governor of Alabama. They demonstrated in the hundreds, assaulting buses carrying black students. Police showed up in riot gear. But if asked, many of these women would tell you that their anti-busing rage was not racially motivated. It was about choice. It was about their kids being able to walk to school. And, and what we see is that a colorblind discourse had emerged as a way to talk about white supremacist politics with a less overt language, right? So rather than talking about 1954 after the Brown decisions, they didn't want their little white girls going to school with oversexed black boys. Well, in the 1970s in Boston, now there's some of that, right? But the sort of more, the more mainstream rhetoric is that this erodes our authority as mothers. This is a feminist issue and the feminist movement isn't coming to our rescue. The point of rehashing this history is not to prove that somehow white women were solely responsible for white supremacy. But we have to challenge our assumptions of what racism looks like. It's not just white men with their pickup trucks and Confederate flags. It certainly didn't disappear a century ago. It was never limited to the South. And we white women have played a significant, if perhaps less visible, role in embedding it throughout American society. And the sooner we identify the patterns of the past, the sooner we can recognize their ghosts in our own behavior today. Many liberal white women have probably spent a lot of time believing that the sexism we experience makes us more sensitive to the plights of other people facing discrimination. It's nice to believe, but it's not necessarily true. It's not to say that misogyny isn't real or that it doesn't affect white women. Of course it is, and of course it does. But when we don't consider both truths, 
that we are also privileged by our whiteness. Our very identities become weaponized. The justification for racial terrorism, including lynchings, has often been the supposed protection and defense of white women's virtue. And we've frequently been complicit in that terrorism, making false accusations that incited mob violence and resulted in the brutal murders of black men, or even, in the famous case of Emmett Till, a young boy. It's not just that we're being used for white supremacy, we're also putting our shoulders into the effort. Jesse Daniels, who we heard from at the start of this episode, is a professor of sociology at Hunter College. She's studied how the white supremacist movement has moved into the mainstream in the digital age. Several months ago, Jesse, along with most Americans, watched the video of Amy Cooper, sometimes referred to as Central Park Karen, call the police on a bird watcher who had asked her to leash her dog. Amy is a white woman. The bird watcher, Christian Cooper, is a black man. And part of what's so telling about it is we see her before she calls 911, right? And she's threatening him. I'm going to tell them that there's an African-American man who's threatening my life. And then when she gets on the 911 call and is talking to the dispatcher, we hear her throw her voice a half octave. Help, I'm in danger. And it's that move. It's really when she throws her voice and she does this kind of performance of a damsel in distress that is the sort of quintessence of, you know, a nice white lady who's weaponizing white womanhood so that the whole apparatus of the police can come to her rescue. That interaction revealed how pervasive and enduring these dynamics are and why it's so important that we as white women grapple with our racial privilege. Because if we don't, we align ourselves, consciously or inadvertently, with something much more sinister. Remove race from feminism, and suddenly discussions of equity become pretty shallow. Unless you begin with a critical race analysis, and, you, and instead you begin with a, just a gender-only analysis, then you're going to end up back at white supremacy. It's just, it just circles around that way, because when you're looking at gender-only, then you start talking about white women who just want to be equal with white men. Jessie has a chilling example. For years, she has studied white supremacist organizations and the conversations they support in online forums. One site, Stormfront, is a digital meeting place for neo-Nazis. And one of the places within Stormfront that I spent a lot of time was a particular um, bulletin board called the Ladies Only Forum. <laughs> and it was for the white supremacist ladies um, to come and talk about you know, their interest in white supremacy. And, and one of the things that I found that it w was that it was their conversation was quite pedestrian. And it was also kind of marginally feminist. Um, and what the kinds of things that they would talk about are the kinds of things that a lot of straight women talk about when they get together, which is, uh, aren't men silly? And how do we put up with them? Uh, women deserve to have equal pay for equal work. It can be easy to distance ourselves from racist suffragists, from anti-busing activists, from the neo-Nazis on Stormfront, or even Amy Cooper. But something that struck me in talking with both Elizabeth and Jesse were the conversations they reported having with other white women. Women who are willing to acknowledge a history of racism 
or to recognize it in their mothers or sisters or neighbors, but are reluctant to turn that lens on themselves. Jessie has a term for these women. It also happens to be the title of her upcoming book, Nice White Ladies. I think that, you know, nice white ladies are all of us who think of ourselves as, you know, just trying to take care of ourselves and our families and not part of this bigger discussion about race. And yet, that very distancing from this larger discussion about race is part of the problem. It's part of how we're complicit in systemic racism. And I think that we have to change our thinking about where we fit in this landscape of systemic racism and how to tackle it and how to help dismantle it um, if we're to move forward in this country. If we are to take President-elect Biden's call for healing seriously, then this moment will require something different of us. It will require us to fight as passionately for the dignity of others as we would our own. To correct the wrongs of a hundred years ago, when our white foremothers secured their right to participate in American democracy, then turned a blind eye to the continued disenfranchisement of black and indigenous women. The most pressing question is not whether some mythic other white women came around in this election, but whether we, as white women who profess to care about equity and justice, will do our part. Over the next five episodes, we'll examine how to do just that, and why doing so has proven so challenging. We'll begin that investigation at a place near and dear to our hearts, our families. Remember those suburban housewives that Trump was tweeting about? Well, his choice of words was no coincidence. That traditional nuclear family, it turns out, is pretty instrumental in shaping white women's politics. Next week, we head to the suburbs in search of the housewives. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler One. Talk to you soon. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts.